Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. So we're at a bit of a disadvantage when it comes to hearing this passage of Scripture. You see, keeping the Sabbath was one of the four fundamental ways the Jewish people embodied their unique relationship with God. Our culture's indifference toward the Sabbath puts us at a disadvantage in understanding exactly how serious this situation is. It's not about the Pharisees having bizarre rules. It has nothing to do with legalism. It's not about the Pharisees being super punctilious and over-the-top legalists. The point at hand is that the Sabbath was a big deal to all the Jews, including Jesus. Remember, the fourth and longest commandment is to honor the Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath. Now, I did this on the retreat, but let, let let me give you an illustration again. The only way I know to help us, Americans, understand how serious this situation is, is to think about how soldiers on an army base would respond if you walked into the middle of the parade ground, threw down a flag, put lighter fluid on it, and lit it. That's how you would feel if you were a Jew watching Jesus. Now, because of our distance from the Sabbath, we sit in judgment over the Pharisees. It's easy to sit in judgment over them. Look at them all caught up in these bizarre rules. But that's a distraction because that's not the case. For a Jew in Jesus' world, the Sabbath was one of the four badges of Jewishness. The way for many people in our culture, a flag is a badge, a symbol Of being in America. So throw down a piece of cloth on a parade ground. Light it. It's not a big deal. Throw down a red piece of cloth. Not such a big deal. A a cloth that's red and swirly and right. Not a big deal. But because a certain piece of cloth is a symbol. Burning it will lead to your uncomfortable experience. On that parade ground. You don't mess with symbols. Because when you mess with symbols, you're you're punching people at a very deep, you're provoking them. I mean, this could happen with you, right? Those of you who are married, if I grabbed your wedding ring and smashed it with a hammer, you would respond differently than if I smashed another piece of metal with a hammer. And the only difference is one is a symbol and one is not. You don't mess with symbols. Now... The the Sabbath, it was this badge of Jewishness. And there was all kinds of, of meaning packed into it. It was a badge for people who had been persecuted and killed just for being Jews. It was a national flag. It spoke of the freedom to come, of the of hope for the great day of rest. We rest on the Sabbath, even though every other culture doesn't. And by resting on the Sabbath, it is is a symbol of our hope for that great day of rest when God will finally liberate us from from Rome, from the pagan oppressor. 
It was a badge. It was a symbol that looked not only forward to the great day of rest and the future liberation from Rome. It looked back to the creation of the world when God rested. It looked back to the exodus from Egypt when God liberated his people from the great oppressor before. It was a badge that marked out God's people. It marked out those who kept the Sabbath as God's people, God's faithful people, God's hoping people. So why in the world is Jesus messing with the Sabbath? And not just messing with it, messing with it again. Did you notice the first line? Again, he entered the synagogue. That's a thing you do on the Sabbath. Why does Jesus do this? Why is Jesus messing with the Sabbath? It's not legalism. It's not that. So many of us have developed a lens that we read the Bible and we think the basic backbone of the Bible is grace versus law. Freedom versus legalism. When you come to the Bible and that is your lens of interpretation, you will distort it. That's part of the Bible, but it's not the fundamental backdrop of the Bible. And if you take that lens to a passage that's not about that, you'll distort the passage into your preconceived. It'll, it'll change the meaning. It's like going into a conversation with a friend or an enemy or a spouse with, the, with a certain idea that they are in a totally different place. You get to the end of the conversation and you realize, oh, wait a minute. You were talking about this and I was talking about that. And then you have to start all over, right? Now, what's going on in this story? Why is Jesus messing with the Sabbath? Well, let's look at the story. Again, he entered the Sabbath He entered the synagogue. Here's Jesus going to synagogue on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Why? Because he's a Jew. He's Jewish. And he's a good Jew. He follows the gracious commands that God has given the Jewish people. So going to the Sabbath is a holy habit for Jesus that he delights in. Going to the synagogue on the Sabbath. It's a holy habit that Jesus delights in. Like Psalm 119 says, Jesus says, I love your law. It's life to me. For him, the law of God wasn't oppressive. It was life-giving. But things are getting hot between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? Well, they are an unofficial religious and political pressure group. And by the time of Jesus, they've been active in Israel for about 200 years. Their agenda, their, the whole reason the Pharisees, this unofficial religious political pressure group, the whole reason they exist, their, their, their purpose is to purify Israel by summoning Israel to return to her true ancestral traditions. Sounds to me like Republicans. I'm not joking. Right? A lot of the Republican rhetoric is all these books about Abraham, Lincoln, right? Let's go back to our roots. Now, I'm not saying Republicans are Pharisees. I'm just saying that same basic logic. The way a nation restores its life is by being true to its roots. That's the logic of the Pharisees. Let's be true to our ancestral traditions to restore Israel to an independent theocratic status. See, Israel flourished when she wasn't overrun by Rome in the days of David when she was an independent nation. 
A theocratic nation. A nation ruled by God through a king with religious laws. Let's, 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 the way we get back to that is we do a better job at honoring the commands of God. Now, the way they worked this out and fleshed this out is that the Pharisees became experts in studying and living the way of life God had outlined for them in the Old Testament. Now, there were two basic groups of Pharisees. Think of it like Democrats and Republicans. This was a two-party system. The followers of Hillel and the followers of Shammai. But that's not important. What I want you to know is that one of those parties, the followers of Hillel, of, of Shammai was by far in a way the dominant party, the largest party, the great majority. And this particular party was committed to revolution. Throw off the occupying force of Rome through revolution so that Israel, like I said, can be purified and rep- return to her independent theocratic status. Now, remember the Pharisees were an unofficial religious and political pressure group. They didn't have any real authority to make laws or to enforce them. But they did have significant influence over ordinary people. The the opinion of the Pharisees mattered. The ordinary people of Israel shared the Pharisees' hatred of Rome. And and they had great respect for the Pharisees' expertise in, in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. And they desired revolution. You can imagine this, right? An occupied nation. How easy it would be to desire revolution. Now, like all groups, These guys were a mixed lot. Some of them were wise, devout, holy men. And some, it seemed, behaved like nosy journalists in the modern world, setting themselves up as the self-appointed guardians of public morality and spying on people who were in the public eye, you know, the paparazzi waiting to catch them. Now, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you might know this is the final scene in a series of five conflict stories between Jesus and the Pharisees. It goes back and starts in Mark chapter 2, verse 40. This is the fifth and final conflict story between Jesus and these Pharisees. The pressure's been mounting. Jesus is not on the same path as they are. His goals are close to their goals. They both share the same language. They both are committed to seeing God's will done to God's will in the Old Testament being fulfilled. They're both committed to seeing the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. But for Jesus, this in no way involves revolution. The fundamental difference between Jesus and the Pharisees isn't legalism, it's political agendas. The Pharisees are insisting on revolution against Rome. And Jesus is saying no. And when, when, when you argue in the public eye about the best way for a nation to find health, <laughs> it can lead to conflict. That's the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. 
Because Jesus is a public figure. And he's saying the, the way the kingdom of God will be revealed and Israel will be liberated is not through revolution. It's in this very, very different path. Now back to our story. Here's Jesus going to synagogue. And as soon as he enters, there they are. Some of these pesky, nosy, um, journalistic Pharisees. Watching to see if they can catch Jesus do something that they can use against him. Because this guy, he's leading the masses in a way. We don't want the masses to go. And what do you know? The opportunity presents itself, right? When you're looking for a way to discount somebody, you'll find a way to discount somebody. There's this man. His hand is withered. You can imagine it, can't you? Can't you see in your eye, in your mind's eye, one of his hands atrophied, probably paralyzed? And in a culture where most men made a living through manual labor, do you feel the sadness can you imagine the devastation that's that a severe disability to your hand would do in an agrarian culture all the possibilities it would eliminate can't support a family can't wear that hard work badge of honor can't measure up The man's suffering. And that should have evoked compassion from the Pharisees. But it doesn't. Their only interest is to see whether Jesus will violate their interpretation of the Sabbath laws. In their view, unless there's a life-threatening condition, healing counts as work. And the longest of the Ten Commandments says don't work. And they really do want to honor God. They really do. God prohibits work on the Sabbath. But don't you just love Jesus? He's not intimidated by this pressure. I mean, you've been there where you can feel people judging you. You know the internal desire to just get out of the situation. Don't you love Jesus? He couldn't give a flip. He's not intimidated by their blatant arrogance and their obvious scrutiny. In fact, verse 3, he tells the man, stand up. Let's do this in public. Come closer. And then he asks the Pharisees, before he does it, this is like drama, right? He feels the weight of it. He, he asks him to stand up. Oh, no, he's going to do it in public. No, it's even worse. He then looks at the people. The man's still standing there. And he brings the issue to a focus. He puts them on, a spot, on the spot. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill it? You see, he's putting the issue at hand into the starkest possible terms. Now, when he uses the word legal, he means legal according to the Old Testament. Remember, theocratic society, so religious rules are the law. This is a religious society, and their laws are the laws of the Old Testament, the laws that God revealed to them and gave them as a gift. And remember, Jesus and the Pharisees, they share all of this commitment to the Old Testament in common. So he's debating with them on the ground that they both share. Is it legal to do good on the Sabbath or only to do evil? Does it honor God to make people alive or to only kill them? They know the answer. You ever in an argument and somebody asks the question that nails you, reveals the flaw? You know what you do in that moment? Just what they did. You don't answer it. (laughs) They refuse to give him the satisfaction. Don't act like you're better than them. You know how these kind of arguments go. They refuse to give him the satisfaction. They give him a stony silence. 
Mike, you've got that great look that you do. Show this is how I imagine them in my eyes. So stand up over there and show show the room. Come on, this is amazing. Mike's got this profound look of disagreement. Come on. <laughs> you need to, those of you who are close. You can see it. He can turn his whole fr- smile upside down. It's in, incredible. I I, don't, I have no idea how the facial muscles can even do that. Can you imagine looking at a group of people doing that to you? And then it says Jesus looked around at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. He's angry. It's not an image of Jesus many of us are accustomed to. It's not an image of Jesus that gives us the warm fuzzies. Why is he angry? Well, it tells us. He's angry because their hearts are hard. The Pharisees thought the subject at hand was a withered hand, pun intended. But Jesus turned the tables. He brought the focus on their withered hearts. Apparently, our hearts matter to God. Apparently, a hard heart is when we develop a stubborn refusal to be open to God. Back to the story. At Jesus' word, the man stretches out his crippled hand. And wow, it's restored. It's wonderful. I mean, can you imagine? His whole life is now changed. Future is opened up. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine this withered, crippled, paralyzed hand? And as he stretches it out, restored. I wonder if the skin was like the skin that returns after a burn. In my mind, I wonder, what, what was the hand like? Uncalloused? New, what, 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 can you just see it in your mind's eye? And how do the Pharisees respond? Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Well, apparently that's the answer to Jesus' question. Would they rather do good or evil on the Sabbath? Would they rather heal or kill? Because on the Sabbath they chose to kill. They answered it. Now let's go back to the question I asked at the beginning. Why does Jesus keep messing with the Sabbath? Why does Jesus do this? Especially when the stakes are so high. After all, this is such a serious, explosive issue. Why does Jesus do this? Well... Let's focus on three reasons Jesus is picking this fight. A fight he knows will lead to his death. First, the first reason I think Jesus is picking this fight is that the Jewish people of Jesus' day had wedded their religion to a fierce nationalism. And like I alluded to earlier, there were four symbols that grounded Their nationalistic, religious approach to life. Sabbath, food laws, circumcision, and temple. Those of you who know the story of the gospel, what was the the straw that breaks the camel's back and leads immediately to his arrest, torture, and murder? When he said, destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. When he messed with that symbol, the granddaddy of them all. 
Well, as it so happens, when nationalism and religion are wedded so tightly together, it can make for some pretty nasty dynamics. For Jews, for example, these four gifts, Sabbath, food, law, circumcision, temple, these four gifts had been turned into badges, into weapons. It's not enough to be a loyal Jew. You have to be a better loyal Jew than the other guy. This is a no-win situation. The whole point of these four gifts has been lost. Right? Instead of something that is a gift to us, it now becomes a thing by which I judge you over. I dismiss you over. I determine who's in and who's out over. It becomes a weapon I bludgeon you with. Now, it's a long and complicated story how this all evolved. But eventually, there were, there were many of the Pharisees, not all of them, but many of them whose hearts were hard to God. Their hearts were so hard, they were unable to see and celebrate what God was actually doing right in front of them. Right in front of their noses. So Jesus is trying over and over and over to help the Jewish people to see how they had gotten off base. So one reason Jesus is messing with the Pharisees over the Sabbath is because they had turned the Sabbath into something it wasn't. They had turned it into something dehumanizing. When the Sabbath was supposed to be rehumanizing. The Sabbath was so important to God that God in the flesh takes it on. After all, what was the last thing we're told in the previous story? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. It matters to God. Now what does this have to do with us today? It's this. You see, I think it's important for us to ask the question, how can we recapture the true spirit of the Sabbath? Because we live in a world where economic forces are far more dehumanizing than the abused Sabbath law ever was to the Jews. We are far more messed up on the Sabbath than the Pharisees were. The point of the Sabbath was rehumanization. How many of you stop one day a week and refuse to produce anything? How many of you are so amped up with production? We live in a production, a consumption culture, consumerism. This is the triumph of postmodernism. And by accusing the Pharisees of being bizarre legalists, we let ourselves off the hook in the way that our consumptive culture is far more dehumanizing to us with regard to our rhythms of a week than the Jews' punctiliousness ever was to them. Now, here's how I try to honor God with regard to this issue. On Sunday afternoon, when we go home, I give my phone to Janelle. She turns it off and hides it. See, we don't have a computer in the house. One of the reasons is because work is like a um, swamp. Have you noticed? It fills every corner of your life. But I've got an iPhone, <laughs> which is you know, more powerful than most computers, right? And I am hyper addicted to checking things on it. So the only way I can get away from work and give it, one of the key issues in my life is to turn off my Now, look, if you've got an emergency, you can call Janelle's phone. She, her phone doesn't tyrannize her the way mine tyrannizes me. 
She has an iPhone and she checks her email once a week. (laughs) Not a joke. I'm serious. (laughs) Janelle's one of those weirdos that if we're having a conversation and her phone rings or beeps, she actually doesn't check it. She keeps on with the conversation. So she's in control of the phone. And, I, and for me, my, my Sabbath starts on Sunday afternoon. I'm normally up at 4.30, so I've worked eight hours by the end of the time we leave here. And so my Sabbath starts Sunday afternoon, and it goes through Monday. So my phone is off Sunday through Monday. If, if you email me over the weekend, I'll get back with you on Wednesday. I do email Wednesday through Friday. Now, that's just one of the ways that I try to resist the tyrannization, the, the swampiness of work. Another way we try to do it in our family is that we don't allow our kids to do homework on Sunday. They have to get it done on Saturday. They have to be disciplined. And we have to maintain a schedule of life that gives them the space to get it done on Saturday. See, if you fill up Saturday with so much activity that you can't finish your work for the week, then you're going to have to work on Sunday. See, part of, our, part of our command of God is to six days we work and one day we don't. Well, to do your work in six days, you have to finish your work in six days. We don't, we, our kids have chores they have to do. We don't allow them to do chores on Sunday. They love this. This is life-giving, isn't it? Can you imagine what it's like, college students, to get to Sunday and not to have homework to do? Can you imagine how life-giving that is? To wake up and realize you don't have to clean your room today? It's just rehumanizing, right? <laughs> to the tyrant parents who make them clean their room every day. <laughs> Shelby said um, a couple of weeks ago, I said, Shelby, it's time to get your bath. He said, Dad, I've been getting a bath every day. <laughs> Can I have one break? We worship on the Lord's Day. We make a disciplined commitment to coming here. This is a great act of bringing our humanity into community with God. One of the great purposes of worship is that you will actually feel rested in the presence of God. Worship, rest, cease, feast. These are the ways. Eat the food you want to eat. If you diet, don't diet on the Lord's day. The groom is with you. Who would fast on the Lord's day? Who would reduce food to nutrition at a feast? So one of the reasons Jesus kept picking fights around the Sabbath is because he had given the Sabbath to his people as a gift, a gift for their good. But the Jewish people had turned it into a weapon to bludgeon people with. It was no longer life-giving. And here is the Lord of the Sabbath restoring the Sabbath to its original intent. Will we let him do that in our lives? (laughs) That's wonderful. So honest. For the second reason... The second reason I think Jesus is picking a fight, not just because it matters so much to him, the Sabbath does. The second reason, to to open it up to you, I've got to tell you something. Over the past several weeks, we've seen Jesus traveling around Galilee preaching. And what is he preaching? Well, he's he's a one-note band. You know, he's got one sermon. And he's continually announcing that Israel's dream was coming true. Saw this back in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. The central aspirations of the Jewish people were coming to pass. But it was not in the way they had expected. 
right? They had expected their central aspirations of liberation, of, of freedom would be through revolution. This was not at all in that way. Over and over, Jesus was announcing that the climax of Israel's history was dawning. The kingdom of God was finally being restored to Israel. And this was bringing great opportunity and great danger. The opportunity was the kingdom of God is at hand. They, were get, they had the opportunity to experience their greatest hope. The kingdom of God. The danger lay in their obsession with their national existence and liberation. So why does Jesus keep healing on the Sabbath and pushing against their interpretation of the Sabbath? Well, like I said, it's not about legalism. The Pharisees were not legalists. We've got to get that out of their mind. Is legalism a thing? Yes. It's a minor note in the Bible. It's not the major note. Is it in the Pharisees? Yes. But it's a minor note. About as much as it's a part of our life. Very few people do I know are just radical legalists. Most of us are libertines, right? Now, the issue is much bigger than legalism. Jesus was doing this because he was trying to get through to the Jews. He was saying, give up on your interpretation of the tradition which is so dominating your imagination, so gripped you, the path you're on, this agenda of revolution against Rome. This is driving you toward the cliff's edge of ruin. Instead of revolution, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Just think through how the Beatitudes are pushed back against this political agenda. Right? This Choose the way of meekness, not revolution. Choose the way of peacekeeping, not the way of revolution. Jesus was over and over saying, you've got to abandon this path you're on and instead embrace a different interpretation of the Old Testament. One, which though it looks like the way of loss, right? Meekness feels like loss. Laboring for peace instead of striving and fighting. That feels like loss. Jesus said, you're all upside down. And the way of loss is actually the way of gain. It's the way of true victory. And if you don't choose this path, you will pick a fight with Rome. And Rome will do to you what Rome does best. Rome will destroy you. Now, why don't the Pharisees listen? Get out of our minds. It's not because they're legalists. See, that lets us off the hook. No, they're much more like us. They don't listen because their hearts are hard. That's what Jesus said. Hard-heartedness is the issue. So a second reason that Jesus is doing stuff on the Sabbath that provokes so much conflict is that he's meeting their hearts. He's trying to take a jackhammer to to the granite, stony heart. He's trying to break open the fallowed ground. And this is the point for us this morning. How is your heart? See, don't sit in judgment over the Pharisees. Instead, see the real issue and then allow the Bible to be a mirror. How is your heart? 
A hard heart. Remember what I said. It's what we develop when we have a stubborn refusal to be open to God. How about it? How's your heart? Is your heart soft to God? Our passage from Ephesians that Kyle read. Read over it sometime this week. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Any of those things God been working on you on lately and you've just refused to be open to his work in your life? You've committed yourself to your own way? Be careful. Be careful. When God works in you and you refuse him, the consequence is an increasingly hard heart. That's the danger. Now, to open up the third and final reason that I can see for Jesus continuing to heal on the Sabbath, even though the stakes were so high, you need to know something. You need to know that in all four Gospels, this is shocking when I learned this. In all four Gospels, every single healing that Jesus initiated took place on the Sabbath. Every time Jesus initiates a healing, every single time, In all four Gospels, it's on the Sabbath. Now, he did a lot more healing than that. But any time he healed on another day, every single time Jesus healed on a day, not the Sabbath, it was a sick person or their relatives or their families who approached Jesus and sought healing, who initiated it. But when Jesus initiates, it's always on the Sabbath. Fascinating. Why? What, what's going on here? Lots of things, but, but, but just one thing. There's a clue for us in what he said to the crippled man, the man with the crippled hand. Look back at verse 3. Look closely. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Remember that? I made a big point of that at the beginning. Now, this was originally written in the Greek language. We're all reading it in an English translation. But that verb, come here, it can also be translated, rise up. It is the same verb the angel uses in Mark 16, verse 6, when he says to the people that have come to the tomb looking for Jesus, don't be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen up. Same verb. That's the clue. When Jesus heals people in Mark's gospel, Mark, the author, frequently uses this verb at some point in the story. Why? What's he doing? He's telling us, That Jesus is restoring life to death. (laughs) He's telling us these are foreshadowing. These are hors d'oeuvres for what Jesus is going to do. He's going to rise up. And then we get to the end and we see this verb used in its climactic way. Jesus rose up. And now we can look at all those healings and see that they're defined by the resurrection. And we can see that Jesus is restoring people to true and full life. The last sentence of the story, right before this one, the story we looked at on the retreat, the story Mark 2, 23 to 28, the last sentence, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Here we see it. Jesus, the Son of Man, he's Lord of the Sabbath, and he exercises his lordship, our word, kingship. He exercises his kingship by undoing the brokenness and the evil and the suffering and the sin in our world. He's inaugurating the new creation where we're restored to our full humanity, to the fullness of life that God intended from the beginning. Here is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
God's gift to us. And he's bringing resurrection life into dead hands and dead bodies into a dead world. The Spirit has been poured out from on high, right? At his baptism in Mark chapter 1, the Spirit is poured out. So whoever is in Christ, behold, a new creation. The kingdom of God, the reign and rule of the Creator are breaking in and they are erupting into this dead world. And one day, when Christ returns and completes his work, there will be a full, comprehensive resurrection. All the dead places of your life. All that unforgiveness you struggle with, he will wipe it away. All the vestiges of evil, evil you've done and been done to you, wipe it. Resurrection. All the scars, all the crippling, resurrection, life. There will be a final triumph over all of the death in all of the spheres of life. Ed, don't you long for the day when big businesses are fully life-giving. And Aaron, when our justice system brings life. And Ed, when people are no longer destroyed by finances. Don't you long for the day. There will be a judgment in that day that sorts out every disorder. That's what justice means. Making right. This is the day. This is the day when Christ will bring everlasting life. As Christians, we live by faith in the accomplished salvation in Christ and the Spirit. And we wait in hope for the consummation of God's kingdom. When heaven and earth are once again made one. And the glory and the goodness and the righteousness and the healing and the justice and the beauty of God covers this earth. Like water covers the seas. Can you imagine if that was actually true? you want that to be true who doesn't want that story to be true you know why i'm a christian because it's the best story told it's my favorite story it's the story we all long to be true and guess what it is true it is what a god Who wouldn't want to declare loyalty to the God who is both our creator and our restorer? Who offers us life, full life. Over and over in Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus is not some pie-in-the-sky religious freak. And he's not focused on a future in heaven so much that he overlooks the reality of the present. No, in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus time and time again. He embraces life in the present. He restores the integrity of life. He revitalizes human communities. He sets the cosmos in order. And eventually, we see in Mark's gospel that he commissions the community of God's people to carry on this work. This grace work, this grace of putting into practice restoration and justice and beauty and wholeness and holiness and righteousness and life. Jesus is concerned with the, with the totality of embodied life, including its social, economic and political concerns. Jesus shows us that God, the God of Israel, who is the one and only God, this God is the great benefactor 
That's who he is. He's the benefactor God. And his redemptive purposes are manifest in this, in this life of Jesus whose message is that this benefic- benefaction, it enables and it inspires us to live lives of benefaction. And when he returns and he completes his work of making all things new, you will be fully human, fully healed, truly yourself. Let's open our lives and our hearts and our imaginations to Jesus even more than we ever have before. And in the new heavens and the new earth, what a joy. We will be a thousand times more our unique, unrepeatable selves than we have ever been before. When we follow Christ, we don't lose life. We don't lose ourselves. No, the, the, the way down is the way up. We're saved when we follow Jesus. Saved from what? From death? From being someone other than who we were made to be? Let's follow Christ. And if we do, we will move closer and closer to life. Closer and closer to true humanity. Closer and closer to our unrepeatably unique selves. Follow Christ and you will see glimpses of a resurrection In the dead places of your life. Follow Christ. He's the king. And his kingdom is the stuff of your wildest dreams. Let's pray.